0: Our Father, we are grateful for this privilege to assemble together and have a a meal together and then to hear from your Holy Word. We thank you for Brother Larry and his teaching ability. We just pray that our hearts (coughs) may be blessed and challenged and instructed this morning on this uh, topic. We give you our thanks, our Father, and thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. Thank you for your abiding Word. And We just pray that we may uh, not be just uh, hearers, but doers as well.
1: Ask your blessing now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'd like to just read a verse of scripture in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2. She, but she came through the uh, wardrobe, smoothies, right, thank, no, thank you, trying to quit, um, through the wardrobe, to the smoothie place, yeah. well, who's her brother, Raymond. Yeah, but that's where they came from. 9, really? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, but they had issues. That papers couldn't, you know, couldn't get back in the country or, or yeah, yeah. Texas, Texas or Texas. you or, yeah. got it, yeah. Like political asylum. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And yeah. her yeah. yeah. dad was like uh, something big in the yeah. Army. What's her name again? Atlanta? I know. No. no. Yeah. I think I have this already.
3: Again, my friend.
4: They're a numerical sequence.
1: We will be beginning on page forty three. Forty three. We'll start with page forty-three when we start with that particular handout. When everybody gets the handouts handed out. Get it
4: handed out. All these Christian people love handouts. Always.
1: I like that. That's good. I didn't get that right off. That's good. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, For under the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not Put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The subject of angels and demons, or angiology as it's technically called, and demonology, I want to confess at the very outset, my vast ignorance on this subject. It's not one that I uh, completely or fully understand. So what we'll do is look to the scripture and see what it has to say and hope to have some interaction and exchange um, around some of the scriptural themes on this particular subject. The handout I gave you, the four pages, come from a very helpful book that I have found, actually was given to me a few years ago, and it's a biblical chart book on uh, theology, so it charts and lists the major doctrines of of scripture and whatnot uh, by various means of charts and things like we have on these handouts here before you. Um, I could have redone the whole thing and typed it up and made you think that I did it, but Rather than doing that, I'm just giving it to you as I got it, because really it covers pretty much all the bases. And like uh, anything else that has the touch of man on it, you may find things here in which you don't agree with 100%, but it gives us a good basic outline on what the Bible has to say about angels and about Satan and demons and so on, which I'm sure will generate uh, some... Discussion. Um, just wanted to look at one verse here before we get going. Good. Angels. Basically, uh, in definition, Angels. The, the word is a very uh, generic kind of a word that means messenger, if you look at the Greek word. And so various places in the New Testament, particularly, and some in the Old, it is translated um, by various terms or used. The same word is used in different ways. So, for instance, there are a few times in the New Testament where you'll have it used of men, of just you know, pure individuals, You'll have other times where it's used in a way that seems to indicate uh, a departed spirit of an individual. Um, you get an example of that in the book of Acts, for instance, if we look there. Acts chapter 12. when You remember the, when Peter was delivered from prison and came back to the house where they were praying for him. And in Acts chapter 12, 15, when, the, when the, the woman named Rhoda came to the door and came back, and Peter stood at the gate, she went in verse 15 and said, Thou, and told them what had happened. They said, Thou art mad, but she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. And so that's probably an instance where you get it used of, uh, of the departed spirit of the individual. That's not the common usage. The common usage is more those created beings who serve the Almighty in uh, the capacity of being his messengers or servants. Now, we want to be very careful. I've been made aware that the knowledge of this Bible study Today is, uh, what is today, the 6th, June 6th, 2009. I'm saying that for means of recording. That uh, the knowledge of this Bible study has spread so wide and far that when once it was discovered, someone decided to make a movie about angels and demons. And
0: uh,
1: I think it's currently been released. But. I, I do bring that up because there is a lot of misunderstanding and unbiblical view when it comes to angels and demons. A lot of it comes by way of mythology. A lot of it comes by way of the Middle Ages. A lot of it comes by way of Milton and some of those uh, other uh, middle, you know, middle age sort of writers, Paradise Lost and those type of things, the classics. And so those kind of a things have... Uh, have carried down through the ages and sort of permeated the thinking even of Christians. We want to be careful of two extremes. The one extreme is the extreme that existed in the day of the Lord Jesus, and that was the extremes of the Pharise- of the Sadducees, the certain sect of the Pharisees who did not believe in a resurrection and did not believe in spirit beings. And so they didn't believe in the, quote, afterlife, so to speak. That's a very extreme view. And we certainly don't want to fall into that trap, nor do we want to fall into the, the other extreme of much of the superstition and legend that surrounds both angels and demons. For instance, um, if we stick to the biblical revelation that's given to us, there are some very basic things that we find concerning angels that fly contrary to much of the popular thinking, whenever angels appear in the Scripture and whenever the term is used of them, they are always male in gender. You never have an appearance in the Scripture of a female angel, and you never have an angel in Scripture that appears with wings. And and so you see right off the at the at the very outset how much of our thinking has been. Uh, affected by legend and some superstition and some just misunderstanding. I think the the wing thing probably is uh, something that's been sort of extrapolated from the visions of the cherubim and the seraphim who are winged creatures. But whenever you find in Scripture the appearance of an angel, he always appears in the form of a man and he always appears... In the form of a a recognizable physical man, male being. Now, you may be a glorious male being, and there's shrouded in light at times and things like that, uh, but never with wings. Probably also, what's lent itself to the thinking of the wing concept is that there are those verses poetically in the Psalms that that speak about God's messengers who fly to do His service. Well. Angels uh, from the revelation of Scripture are not bound by spatial things like we are and, and 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 they're able to transport themselves in that sense but that doesn't mean they're flapping wings you know like a like a big eagle or something so you can tell again how how easy it is to get away from much that we find uh, that the scripture has to say the other thing is that we often here, a very nice sentiment that's expressed, um, but which has really no biblical authority, and that is that when a child dies, there is then another angel in heaven, or that when a child dies, they become an angel in heaven. And there's no biblical basis that I can find or biblical authority for that concept either, but you see how widely prevalent these things are and I'm not trying to tell anybody to go home and you know take your precious moments uh, ornaments off your shelf or anything like that uh, That that isn't the point um, it's just that you, you can see we tend to think these things most people undoubtedly if you asked them what does an angel look like would give you a description that wouldn't fit what the biblical revelation is and so uh, we want to find out what the scripture has to say and uh, and you know, stick closely to to the authority of, of God's word. Angels, um, as you'll note on our sheet, were created as holy beings. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 is a very helpful passage concerning, of course, the person of Christ. And by the way, Colossians as a whole We'll have a good bit to say about spirit beings and the intrusion into the unseen world. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, speaking of the Lord Jesus, says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of every creature or the firstborn of all creation. And that is not, that has nothing to do with the order of birth. It is the place of priority. Now, if you ever get challenged on that verse, by the way, let me just say something about that because the Jehovah Witnesses will use this verse to try to tell you that Christ was the first created being, that he's higher than the other created beings, but he's still a created being, and they will use that term firstborn of all uh, creation or firstborn of every creature. But you may uh, remember that back in... Genesis chapter forty-one, the verses are or fifty-one and fifty-two, you have the birth of the sons of Jacob. I'm sorry, of Joseph. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And then in verse fifty-two, the name of the second called he. Ephraim, that's Genesis 41, uh, 51, and 52. And then if you cross-reference that with what you have in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 9, you'll read these words, Jeremiah 31, 9, They shall come with weeping and with supplications. Will I lead them? I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. You see, Ephraim was not the firstborn as far as the birth order was concerned. But God says Ephraim is my firstborn. And you find that principle elsewhere in Scripture, God bypassing the the natural firstborn to give the priority to one who was born after that. You get it with Jacob and Esau. You get it in various places of Scripture. So the term firstborn is not really a, a, a birth order thing when, in, in some instances. It refers to the place of priority, the place of preeminence, which in the context, obviously, is what is talking about the Lord Jesus there. He's the firstborn. He's over all Uh, every creature. And then that's defined in the context, isn't it? For in verse 16 of Colossians 1, for by him were all things created. Well, if he created all things, everything, then he is uncreated. If he's uncreated, then he's obviously deity. So he was uncreated. He created all things uh, that are in earth, visible and invisible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created by him and for him. And so these different categories that are listed, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, varying degrees of created beings, good and bad, all were created by him. Uh, Genesis chapter 38, I'm sorry, uh, Job chapter 38 If one of you men would get to Job chapter 38 and read verse 7, it would be helpful. When
0: the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy.
1: <clears throat> the morning stars, say, say it again, will you? Quote it again.
0: When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy.
1: The sons of God shouted for joy. Um, keep that place there, and somebody, if they would, read Job, chapter one, in verse one. I'm sorry, verse uh, verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present
2: themselves
0: before the Lord. The seeing came also among them.
1: The sons of God. Now, who are the sons of God there? Who are the sons of God in Job 38 that shouted for joy at the creation of the world?
4: angels. Angels.
1: Yes, sons of God. What, Malcolm?
0: Morning stars, too,
1: right? Would that be the same? Well, it, it, it certainly would seem to be, wouldn't it? A mm-hmm. uh, uh, reference to them, morning stars. Now, why would that be significant, morning stars? Anybody have an idea? The
0: was
4: Lucifer. Lucifer was considered
1: a morning star that's right. Sun of the morning, or the bright and uh, morning star, shining star, Lucifer, which is also a title of the Lord Jesus. Anyway, the characteristic's the same. These sons of God and the morning stars. um, Benai Elohim, uh, the Hebrew, which simply means the sons of God. Um, You find in Job chapter 1, it's helpful, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So they're coming now to be reviewed. They're coming to... uh, stand before their superior. This is just a tremendously helpful passage in Job chapter 1. Um, by the way, as you probably already know, Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible that we have. And so you have in the first chapter of the book of Job uh, the, refu- the refutation, uh, refuting of uh, a number of major flawed um, religions, religious ways of thinking there is no dualism which much of eastern religion is based on, the yin and the yang you know that good and evil are equal powers, the reason why there's evil is because God is not powerful enough to do away with good and therefore the two are, you know, just balance one another out so to speak. These sons of God and Satan come as subordinates they're now coming before the commander to be reviewed and to give an account for what they've done uh, what they've been up to, and that's the question, isn't it? Where have you been? What have you been doing? Not that I don't know, give an account, you see, like you do to your superior or to your somebody who's over you. So the sons of God sang at the creation of the universe. Now, that's a helpful verse. Why? It tells us something, doesn't it, about when angels uh, were created. Well, does it or doesn't it tell us when they were created? You say it does, Malcolm?
0: Is it the implication?
1: Well, yes, what's the implication?
0: (laughs) At at creation.
1: At creation, before creation, during the six days. Anybody's able to feel free to jump in on that? (laughs) Scripture doesn't say, does it? But what what are the maybe implications? Well, the implications of chapter 38, 7 is that they were there when the creation occurred. It doesn't say how long, but the implication seems, as I read it, to, to indicate they were there before the creation. They were watching as the creation occurred. So that seems to imply, doesn't it, that they were created before the world in which we live was created. Now, we're not told when. We just have the implications that they were there and they shouted for joy when they saw uh, the created world that God had made and what God had put into existence. Okay? Keep that in mind, because that'll be helpful when we begin to think on the subject not only of angels, but on the subject of, of demons, and uh, the subject of demonology. Now, there are obviously in Scripture, the revelation that is given to us are there are varying degrees of, of angels. We have in Ezekiel chapter one, for instance, the cherubim that are mentioned. We might want to just briefly look at these passages, Ezekiel chapter 1. They are called the the living creatures, their appearances Mm -hmm. described for us. Um, beginning in verse 5, the the likeness of the living creatures that was found and and so on. And then if you turn over to, I think it's chapter 10, get my bearings here, chapter 10, you will find that as Ezekiel looked, he saw the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim. So they're called cherubims. He sees the place that's heaven the place of the sapphire stone, blue sta- sapphire stone, is the appearance of the likeness of a throne, and he sees these cherubim who lift up and uh, stand over the threshold of the house and so on, and, and then uh, rise from off the city and, and so on. So there they're, they're identified as the cherubs or as the, the cherubim. Now, again, one of the things I'm not clear on, there seems to be a distinction but I'm not positive, and that's in Isaiah chapter 6, those that are called the seraphim. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, these uh, burning ones, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and so on. It says in verse 6, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having alive coal, and so on. The description of the seraphim is given in verse 2. They had six wings and and so on. Now, this is one of those areas where, you know, are they the same as what's in Ezekiel? I don't know. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Maybe it's a category distinction. Uh, The full description of them may not be given. It's certainly not as detailed as Ezekiel's cherubim. The term is different. They may, in fact, be different. As we know, there are levels, thrones, principalities, powers, dominions, and so on. So there are categories within created spirit beings. And it may be that one of those distinctions is the cherubim and the seraphim, varying degrees of angels. There's also uh, a few angels that are identified for us. Gabriel is one. He seems to have a unique role in regard to the nation of Israel. You'll find him in Luke chapter 1 and verse 19. You'll find him in Daniel chapter 8, verse 16, and Daniel chapter 9 and verse 21. I believe that's correct. Or have I mixed up Michael? Let me check. Let me check the Daniel reference. Daniel chapter 8. I believe I might have mixed the two up. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 16 is... No, that's Gabriel. Yes. And Gabriel is in 921 as well. You'll get Micah in Daniel 10 and verse 13. Michael is called the archangel. So he seems to be the highest... Because arch means like number one. You know, arch... Is uh, the word, the term that means first, first in order or, or number one. And so you have Michael, you have Gabriel, you have the archangel connected with uh, a number of things in the New Testament. You have him connected with the coming again of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and uh, with the trump of God. You have him in Jude. And you have him mentioned again in the book of Revelation. Now, let's look, if we could, just briefly in the uh, New Testament to see a description that's found in the book of Revelation of some of the angels that are identified there for us. Revelation chapter 8 Revelation chapter 8, I saw verse 2: seven angels which stood before God. And then I'm looking for another one. Um, Revelation, bear with me here, Uh, Revelation 15. Highly significant. Because of where these angels come from, in verse 5 of Revelation 15, After that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. that is, the innermost part of the sanctuary where the glory of God resides. And, seven, and the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Now, why is that significant, or what does that trigger in your mind, if anything? They had pure white linen, and their breasts were girded with golden girdles. Does that trigger anything in your thinking, Johnny Gill? Uh, I
0: was thinking of a similar description to Revelation chapter 1 about
1: the Lord Jesus. Yeah, same... And, uh, Expressive of his character, and these angels uh, are clothed similarly as the revelation of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1. And so, what you find is that contrary to mythological thinking and middle age thinking, witches uh, uh, with black robes and uh, you know, uh, these hideous looking beings who are casting plagues upon the people of God and all is. Is not a biblical revelation at all. These angels that come forth with the final plagues to be poured out upon the planet, the judgments of God are clothed representing the fact that they bear the same character as the Lord himself, pure white linen, golden girdles, uh, expressive of that a character of our, uh, even of, of our Lord and of God's character, and as they come forward with the bowls uh, that are filled with the wrath of God, it's a very dramatic scene when you see these angels. They've come directly out of the very innermost part of the holiest sanctuary of God, with bowls that are filled to the brim uh, with the very wrath of God to pour out upon the planet. But when they do that. It is in a character that expresses God's holiness and even his restraint, the golden girdle holding in the emotions, if you will, around the breast, as it says. And, and, and so it's a very uh, important biblical concept and a biblical vision of what these angels uh, appear as and how they appear and how they look and what their character is. And so it's always helpful, isn't it, to see... Uh, what the scripture, the insight it gives us. Now, um, their function in the Old Testament, uh, there are various scriptures that will talk about what their functions are in the Old Testament as the messengers and servants of God. Uh, There's one thing I want to qualify here on this page. Where is it? Uh, uh, If you look on page 43 under the category of unfallen angels, uh, to serve God in worship, in ministry, being God's messengers, act in God's government, protecting God's people, and so on. Uh, the second one, uh, reveal truth, Galatians 3.19. Now, I want to carefully qualify that. What's, we, we need to understand what he's talking about. Galatians 3.19 talks about the giving of the law at Sinai, where the angels of God were attendant. Uh, it says in Galatians 3.19 that the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So that on that unique occasion when God gave the tables of the law to Moses on top of the mount and the mount shook and quaked and everything else, there were angels there who mediated and so on. Uh, That's what this means in the handout. It doesn't mean that angels come down and specifically tell you some unique truth. We have to be careful of that, don't we? Do you know that two... Of the world's major false religions, attribute the, their origins to the revelation of angels. Mormonism, the angel Moroni apparently appeared to, uh, or said, not apparently, but was said to appear to Joseph Smith, give him the golden tables and so on, and, and enable him to write the Book of Mormon, etc., etc. One of the world's largest religions. And Islam. You know that uh, that the angel appeared to uh, Muhammad and gave him this revelation to be able to write the Quran and all that. So what an incredible power when we think about uh, revelation being given. That's why I want to be very, very careful to qualify what the writer means in this Galatians 3:19 context. That di- was I, I would e- I would even change that word. I I would change that reveal to maybe deliver or something uh, just so I didn't make a mistake and we are warned aren't we in the book of Galatians if we or any angel you know comes to you to preach any other gospel than that which you've already received um, let them be accursed though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you let him be accursed so it is it is worth noting isn't it that these false religions uh, both would trace back the revelation given by angels to them to begin those those religions. Um, we find the angels very active in the in the book of Acts, and we find them somewhat active in the Gospels. But it seems to be more so in the book of Acts. I don't want to cover all those verses right now, uh, but I want to give you the references that you might think about and look up. Acts chapter five and verse nineteen. Acts chapter 8, verse 26, chapter 10, verse 3, chapter 12, verse 7, and 27, 23. Did everybody who wanted those get those? Or do I need to repeat them? Yes. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 19, chapter 8 verse 26 chapter
0: 10 verse 3 chapter 12 verse 7 and 27 23
5: that's
1: activity of angels in the book of Acts
0: but somebody could use that right Look. Look at what the angels did in, in New Testament time. They revealed things. God used them to, uh, for his service. Surely he could reveal some new religion to me, and I could start it and deceive many.
1: Well, I would refer to two things. I want to take that up in just one second, and I want to go back to the Galatians passage to deal with that. If it's a new religion then that would be disqualified by what you have in Galatians chapter 1. But one last thing that I want to turn to before we uh, open it up a bit for more discussion and questions that I have is um, the function of angels in the age of the church. And I want to turn you to two primary references that are very important. Ephesians chapter 3, <clears throat> one you know I'm sure already, and verse 10. Twenty of you men read that if you would you get there? Ephesians 3.10.
0: To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places.
1: Yes. So that um, the principalities and powers, these created spiritual beings, excuse me, who are in heavenly places, might understand and learn... The variegated, the manifold wisdom of God uh, by the church. That the church is a, a university for created beings. That is, they that they are that one of the major activities get this that one of the major activities of spirit beings today is observing. The church. In a sense, I think it would be safe to say, when we gather together, they are in attendance. They are observing. Now, that's important because when you back up to what you get in First Corinthians chapter, chapter 11, concerning the subject of headship, <clears throat> and the visible display and the symbolic display of that headship, you have this verse in chapter 11, in verse 10, that says, For this cause ought the woman to have power or a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, I want to tell you that if I only had that one verse, to me this is one of the most powerful verses in this whole passage on the the symbolic display of the covered head of the woman and the uncovered head of the man. If you didn't have any other verse in the whole New Testament that dealt with that, that one there, you got a r- tough time getting around that because one that removes everything out of cultural context doesn't. Angels don't have anything to do with cultural context. And it also um, tells us there is a reason why God says that the woman uh, is to uncover her head and the man. I'm sorry, that the woman is to cover her head and the man is to uncover his head because of the angels. Now, what does he mean? Well, I want to make that little bit of a leap, but not too strong of a leap, too far of a leap, to go back to what we had in Ephesians 3, where the principalities and powers learned by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. So what they see, because, see, he's going to take this whole subject of headship... Back to creation and the order of creation. That's what he's just talked about. You see, in verse uh, 7 and 8 and 9, he talks about the order of creation. The man uh, was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. The man is not of the woman, but the woman of man. He's talking about the order of creation, order of creation, order of creation. God created everything in an order, right? Then what happened? Everything got out of order. The woman... Assumed a place of headship that God did not intend. The man failed to take his headship as God did intend. And sin entered in. The woman... This is the way I like to describe this, by the way. Watch this. The woman stepped out from under the authority of the man. Now... Through redemption, symbolically, she places herself under that authority. See, that which she stepped out of before and acted independently, symbolically as the church gathers, she now says, I'm recognizing God's order. And the spirit beings who watch in attendance see that order. And they realize that what got out of order when sin entered in, Through redemption, God has taken those rebels and they now submit themselves. The man uncovers his head and takes his rightful place of headship. This is symbolically. And the woman covers herself and takes her rightful place of subjection symbolically. Now, I don't care which symbolic truth it is. Lord's Supper, baptism, head covering, Obviously, all of those symbols are to have a practical reality, aren't they? And unfortunately, that's not always true, but that doesn't negate the practice. It doesn't negate the practice by saying, well, you know, you don't really take your headship or you don't really take your place of subjection. That doesn't obviate the the symbolic practice. We should live that out in our daily experience, what headship means as a man, what subjection means as a woman, and so on. But anyway, that's a a powerful verse, isn't it? that when you realize this New Testament function of angels in the church. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) That'll wake you up on the tape. Um, I'm going to stop for there because uh, I am. And (laughs) we want to now discuss some of these things. I'm sure you have questions or maybe comments or contributions, and we want to give time for those
2: said here that the unfallen angels deliver truth, right? Yeah, at least
1: they did in that instance, okay. which is referring to the giving of the law. When,
2: when, I, when I think about delivering yeah. or revealing, how yeah. it's said there, I think of the Holy Spirit.
1: Mm-hmm. Why? That's why it's not a good word, deliver, reveal. I don't like that word in either case. It, it was ordained at the hand of angels. It Really, they. when I say deliver, it was like, um, they didn't write this, but they handed it, you see. That's kind of the way I envision what happened with the law. They were there in attendance to mediate. They didn't themselves give it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know that even deliver is the best word, but when I say delivered, to give that which was already a revelation over. Does that clarify that a bit? Yes, it does.
3: Well, Moses, Moses said in Deuteronomy that the law, that had in his hand was written by the finger of God. Yeah. So, oh, no doubt on the tables. Of yeah, yeah.
1: Well, see, part of the argument of Galatians, which I don't necessarily want to get into all that right now, but part of what he's arguing in Galatians is that, um, you know, in the Jewish mind, there was nothing uh, that was superior to the law. You know, that was the very finger of God that wrote on the tables and so on. But what he's arguing is that um, the law was given by the hand, ordained by angels in in the hand of a mediator. And a mediator is not a mediator of one. In other words, it's a go-between between between two parties, but God himself is one. So the promise was given by one. The promise is greater because there's no mediator involved. You see, that's part of that argument there. The other is inferior because there were go-betweens and whatever. Now, back to part of what the question Malcolm raised, which is a question I certainly have, Uh, and if we look at that passage as late as Acts chapter 27, you find Paul saying to the men on the ship, and I recognize too, I want to recognize at least, well not everybody would that Paul was an apostle and apostles did things that not everybody did. and they had powers that not everybody had. And that's borne out by Scripture because uh, Paul could say, and the writer to, uh, uh, Paul could say in 2 Corinthians that the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. Now if they were the signs of an apostle and anybody could do them, then there weren't, wasn't any uniqueness to them. So they could do things other people couldn't do to verify that they were apostles. Okay, but that was before the scripture was complete. But anyway, back in Acts chapter 27:23, you read Paul saying, "For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve." Now, I didn't mention the distinction, very critical distinction in Old Testament, that you have to contextually look at uh, the angel of the angel of the Lord, and just angels. Because the angel of the Lord, most of the time in Old Testament, seems to be a pre-incarnate revelation of the Son of God. Uh, There are many scriptures in Old Testament that indicate that the angel of the Lord was deity, okay? But having said that, when you come now to this passage, Paul says, there stood by me this night the angel of God. God whose I am and whom I serve saying this is what the angel said fear not Paul thou must be brought before Caesar and lo God hath given thee all them that sail with thee wherefore sirs be of good cheer for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me now I know that Paul was an apostle I make that careful distinction in my own thinking but having said that what about angels today that's my question and maybe that's yours And what are your thoughts on that? And what about New Testament revelation to uh, support whatever your thinking is on that?
2: Mary, are you referring to uh, Hebrews 13?
1: That would be a good one to think of. Well, that would be a good one to think of, wouldn't it? Um, Hebrews chapter 13 says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels uh, unawares. Now, whether he's making a historical reference to say, Look what happened back then. They thought it was a man or whatever, but it was actually angels. Um, Is your thought that that's still a possibility today? Is that your...
2: Uh, You know,
0: I guess I... I I never had an experience, but yeah. you always hear about, you know, missionaries having certain
2: experiences that yeah. they thought someone helped them out and then let someone never be so or something
1: like that. So I heard stories but many of you will remember Frank Haggerty, who's with the Lord now. And Frank uh was in Bolivia for years as a missionary. And I remember once when we were studying years ago up in uh, Pennsylvania And Frank uh, asked for the tape to be turned off at the time. And he just wanted to relate to us two very unique experiences he had. Uh, And since then, those have been, I think, also written in a book, one of the books Bill McDonald wrote about. But one was about a time when he and a fellow missionary were poisoned in a certain village. And uh, somebody pointed out to them an antidote, you know, which was some goat's milk and whatnot. But then the whole thing revolved around the fact that Whoever this man was, was this tall, very descriptive fellow of which uh, when they started looking around, there was nobody anywhere around that village that even closely resembled the description of this man you know, that saved their life. And there was another incident on a train where a very similar thing happened. Well, there was no doubt in Frank's mind that it had been a visitation of God. And I've heard other missionaries say the same things. I certainly wouldn't want to deny... Well by angels yes you know and when I say visitation of God I mean by uh, angelic beings um, I have there's there's puzzling things that happen um, I'll tell you one personally that happened it was with my uh, actually with my wife when our kids were young and you know they were running around we had a three almost three in diapers at one time and uh I was a young preacher, and we were struggling to get along and everything else, and Wanda didn't get out of the house much. And I remember she was particularly bothered by the fact that, you know, she really, at that time, you know how life is, she didn't have much contact with other folks. That She really wanted to witness to somebody and just, you know, was very limited there at home watching kids and whatnot. Anyway, um, we used to get this call forwarding, to the house from the chapel and I got a, I used to get all kind of calls during the night and whatnot, but I get this call by this woman and she said, uh, I, I need to talk to you. I was given your name and phone number. And she started to describe this person who was on this bus that she was riding. And, uh, You know, the more she described this person, it was nobody that I knew about or I knew their name or nothing. Nothing just seemed to fit. I met this person on the bus. They gave me your phone number. They gave me your name, you know, and so on and so on it went. I have no clue who the person was. Never heard of him in my life, you know. Anyway, this woman, because it was a woman, I suggested she talk to my wife. And my wife stayed on the phone with her for hours and hours that night. Eventually... It was a long story. The woman was apparently a mule. In other words, she was a carrier for drugs out of South America and Central American places. And she'd gotten so far hooked up into that, you know, that they had their hooks in her. And uh through meeting with her, I sent my wife to meet her out by the airport by herself. And long for the day is a cell phone or anything, you know. And uh Anyway, the long and short of it is, the woman came to know the Lord, and then eventually, miraculously, got out of what she was involved in. And we met her on two or three occasions. She since died, but um, anyway, it was one of those. There was a lot. There's a lot more to it than that. But you know, we always wondered who was that person on the bus, you know, that gave this person our phone number and name and, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I really don't. But, I mean, we always wondered, you know. So um, I, I, I'm one who wants to uh, always exercise a great bit of caution dealing with subjective things and things that go beyond the pale of, thus saith the Lord. But I'm also not one that wants to say this can never happen does that make sense so what anybody else have any thoughts or questions on this it seems subject
0: that, um like a lot of instances that you mentioned that you see of angels like now yeah like i don't some kind of read the book um like from voice of the martyrs like Jesus, streets fox book martyrs those kind of books like, you have, like, an example, of like, Richard Wurmbrand, who was, like, in Romania. Tortured so for, then, Christ. You know, yeah. for Christ. Yeah, tortured for Christ. so you have, like, a, I mean, one after another examples of those who are either persecuted or tortured, or, like, Richard Wurmbrand being years under an underground prison, being tortured for Christ, and and um, he was approached by an angel or something. Yeah. And um, he would then find, like, love for his, uh, capture and then some of them would actually get saved. So, I mean some role of, uh, you know, persecution or that level of faith. Mm
2: -hmm. You know, Larry, I'm sorry, were you finished, (coughs) Lindsay? Yes. I'm sorry. You know, um, we live in a day and age in a society where, I mean, I talk to people, young people, and uh, when me and Tammy start trying to angle in, you know, some sort of witness they speak of, oh yeah, I have a guardian angel.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, and talking about this, at least from my, my own heart, we have to be, or I have to be careful because the angels, in my opinion, and from the Word of God, had nothing to do with my salvation.
4: Okay.
2: And what keeps me, by the grace of God, where He has me, it's because of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And um, that's why I asked, deliver truth, yeah, uh, reveal truth, or guide me, yeah, because I, we don't want to take credit from the uh, Trinity of God to the angels and these protective beings, and uh, give them a, a, a position of Of preeminent authority you you know what I'm
1: trying to say I do I think that if I can rephrase a bit or maybe amplify on it a bit um, expand I think what you're trying to say and this is what I see in the New Testament that the thrust of the New Testament is not a dependence upon angels and this type of thing uh, but it's upon the Lord his salvation his word his indwelling spirit
3: Correct.
1: While I say that, when you read, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, it uh, speaks of the angels and it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So there apparently is a ministry that they have, but it isn't clearly revealed what exactly that is. It, you know, they, but maybe that's purposeful so that our... Confidence and dependence isn't placed upon that.
3: On the angels.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. I don't. I,
3: don't yeah. Think, well, I, I think I think nowadays, like especially in the uh, in the unbelieving, on the general world, there's media and Hollywood fuels this idea, you know, of worship of spiritual beings. Yeah. Anything to not subject themselves to a God of order, and yeah. a God who has a uh, holy standard. But I would say that I wouldn't deny any of those stories that you said. You know? yeah. Obviously, you read a verse in Galatians. The one thing I would say is that, you know, Paul says, well, the gospel has been preached. And it's First Corinthians 15, the first three verses. Yeah. And then if anything comes, even if it is an angel, you're to, refru- you're, you're to refute it. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, we don't have that today because of, just to go along with the revelation, you know, God tells John to seal up these words of prophecy. Don't take away from them, don't add to them. God has finished spoken. And so we have the full revelation of God's word, what he wanted to say. And I would say that he wouldn't need to use angels anymore for that reason, to reveal things to us. Because um, he has given us the full canon of scripture now. We have it in our hands.
5: I think it's good that we looked at that Hebrews passage because it very clearly says both in chapter 1 verse 7 who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire they're his ministers his angels that he sends out and according to uh, 114 uh, sorry 114 uh, to minister for those who will inherit salvation right so like Daniel who prayed to the Lord for guidance for it for, for not for understanding the Lord sent Gabriel so he sent an angel, but his dependence was on the Lord. And so we don't want to, like you say, diminish the, the valid ministry that they have. But we look to the Lord. We're not looking to angels. Yeah. But he definitely uses those angels, right? But there's um, uh, obviously a, a, a real danger and caution that we should have in trying to read into those things more than we really have the knowledge for. I, I think that's what John says in 1 John 4, right? Uh, Do not believe every spirit, beloved, but test the spirits whether they have God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come to flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Um, so there's there's many who would like to use this whole angelic realm as a deception to lead people out of the truth, and probably that's the majority of what we actually hear about, because most of the time we probably don't even know that we've been exposed to angels, yeah. but the enemy would like to use his, his uh, uh, deceptive nature
4: to lead them astray.
1: Well, that's very much true. Uh, even in the Daniel case, which is certainly a unique situation of revelation given to him by, by the Lord. Um, that what most of what went on went on behind the scenes, you know, because he fasted and prayed for three weeks and he didn't even know that at the same time there was this battle going on for three weeks, you know, between uh, uh, Michael and uh, what's going on, you know, or I always get them mixed up, but um, uh, I think it's Daniel chapter 9 when that whole series of events is un- unveiled to him. So what I'm saying is that while He was fasting, praying, so on, and seeking the Lord behind the scenes. He's given a revelation that behind the scenes, uh, this was going on. Gabriel. uh, While I was speaking in prayer, verse 21 of chapter 9, even the man Gabriel and so on came. Um, And where is the, uh, where is what I'm looking for? Daniel chapter 9. Oh, he's set to seek the Lord by fasting and praying and so on. Oh, chapter 10, chapter 10. That's the one I was thinking of. Uh, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me uh, 21 days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. That's chapter 10, verse 13, and so on. So for three weeks he's, you know, um, praying and seeking the Lord and so on. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. Now, he's given a revelation of what's going on, but had he not been, he wouldn't have known. He was just doing what he's supposed to be doing. And behind the scenes, there's this thing going on. And I, I think there's much of that that we don't know. And I want to be careful, too. You know, I want to be very careful because when I say careful, I don't want to um, deny, nor do I want to distort spiritual things. In other words, what the world has done through their television and movies and so on like this is, you know, they've just distorted the whole package. So you get these TV shows about touched by an angel and you get, you know, all these people who are supposed to be God and these representations of movies and whatnot, and it's just an absolute distortion of things. And then one thing that causes us to do, causes people in general to do, is think, ah, there's nothing to all that spiritual stuff, you know? Or you get an overemphasis where people, you know, adore angels and worship angels and and all the rest. And you see, either extreme is wrong, isn't it? There's a valid place, obviously, and things that go on in the spiritual realm that we don't even, we're not even, you know, fully aware of, And I don't want to deny that, because to deny that is really to deny the revelation of God. Years ago, 25 or more years ago, well, let me be careful, 28 years ago, as a matter of fact, um, you'll have to take this for what it is, but it's written in language we might not accept every jot and tittle of, but it, it has to do with preaching. You know, and so I wrote it in the front of my Bible because, to me, it was just very powerful. I just want you to think about what it says. But it's by a man named Matthew Simpson, a book called Lectures on Preaching. It talks about the preacher, and it says, His throne is the pulpit. He stands in Christ's stead. His message is the word of God. Around him are immortal souls. The Savior unseen is beside him. The Holy Spirit broods over the congregation. Angels gaze upon the scene, and heaven and hell await the issue. What associations and what vast responsibility! I mean, when you start thinking, that's powerful. You know, when you think of when I stand up to preach the Word of God or preach the gospel. Wow, you know, I mean, this is a spiritual thing. There's spiritual battles that are taking place. It's a it's a tremendous privilege, but it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? So anyway, I mean, that, I, I want to not diminish nor distort that which takes place in the spiritual realm. I think we'll realize there's a whole bunch more that has taken place when we uh, finally come to that complete part of understanding. Anything else before we break? Yes, Sam.
3: Uh, uh, I don't remember where I read it, but uh, I remember reading a portion, uh, I believe God was talking about children specifically, yes. and, uh, and I believe it's in misleading them uh, yes. scripturally where it says, their angels see my face
1: daily. Yes. I can't remember the before, just your thoughts there, I
3: mean, we're talking as you mentioned, guardian angels, not necessarily in that sense, of the, as the world sees it, but...
1: Yes. Uh, uh, well, that's. I think that's kind of where the concept comes from. Uh, in Matthew, I believe that's Matthew 18 where uh, the Lord is talking there, and he says, um, if anyone offends one of these little ones, and so on. And uh, he says in verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. Again, there's a little bit of... uh, interpretive thing there as to whether it's the same thing as when it talked about Peter's angel, whether it's talking about his spirit or whether it's talking about some form of guardian angel that watches over children. Obviously, uh, the Lord watches over them in that sense, too. So that's, but I, that's where that concept comes from, and it may be a legitimate way to look at it, to take it as that, Um Well, although the great distinction, I think, is something that Ozzie opened the door to, and I want to, in our next session, take it up as well, and that is the distinction of the age in which we live. Um, and I think we'll wait maybe because it'll, it'll tie in nicely with our next session to bring that in because we're going to have to consider the question not only of what about angels in this age, but what about demons of this age? What about what we find in Scripture of demonic activity? And what about what we find today? Cause there's real questions there isn't there so why don't we uh, unless there's another question on the angel part why don't we take a break and uh, and then we'll come back and My
0: had a question.
1: Oh, oh I'm sorry yes yeah, I, I didn't see you there about,
4: um, when the Lord Jesus was approaching the cross mm-hmm. there were some that thought that he should go to the cross did he not say that his father could send lesions of yes. angels to prevent him Yes. But absolutely. That, that did not occur, but the possibility was there. That's and right. The could send the angels to stop it.
1: That's right. Absolutely. Their ability to affect things in this world. And and that's an important concept at least that the Lord brings out. they, they these spirit beings can be sent to do things for good on this planet. And whether that is what we traditionally think of, and it may well be. You know, I'm driving down the road, and but all of a sudden, you know, wow, you know, my car, I should have been killed, and I wasn't. Now, it doesn't happen every time. Sometimes people are killed. But there's times when things happen, and you think, how did I get out of that? I mean, I don't know. You know, maybe it is. They can do things to affect things, like they could have stopped speculatively seeks saying. Raises another question, though. Questions always raise questions in my mind. The Lord himself could have stopped it, but he said he could have called the angels to do it for him. (laughs) And uh, the same when you come to the book of Revelation, Obviously, God can pour out judgments himself, but he uses these ministers of his, if you will, spirit beings, to accomplish and do his will. So they can do things that affect planet Earth under the authority of God. And by the way, um, well, we'll wait to the next session. It's A lot of this dovetails together, and I, I want to bring it in at the next session as well. So... Uh, are there other questions or comments on that?
3: I think that I think what you just said is key to remember is that even if it is demonic activity, just in the case of Job, that they're still subject to God. And even though it seems like, well, Satan pulled the wool over God's eyes, look what he did. He even says, well, the second time when he comes, well, you incited me to go against him. But in the end, God gets the glory, right? Yeah. And so even though Satan didn't know what was going on, you know, he was used for God's purposes.
1: Absolutely. And under authority. You can go this far, no further. You know, and then the next time you can go that far. So he has limitations. He's a limited, finite being, unlike God.
4: Doesn't God's word also say, I remember reading it. Says we're you know we fight with principalities and powers in this earth. It's not a physical aspect, as people say, because you know there's a war going on. We might yep. not see it, because since, since you know we're we're made after God's image, body, soul, and spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The you know, Lord says you know for us to you know be on our guard, because our war, you know our, this is not our home. Our home you know is in glory. You know we're pilgrims passing through on our way. And that you know that, that some of us you know, might not, like I said, some must not, not be aware, there is a spiritual battle going on.
1: Absolutely. The
4: souls. So Satan wants, you know, he's a, power, he's a prince of power there. He wants to take man. Since he destroyed, he deceived Eve, and then, because like you were saying before, she took, instead of the man taking his position, she took his position, and the order was reversed.
1: Well, if there's nothing else, we'll break for there for a couple of minutes or so, and then we'll reconvene. Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. You've given us so much truth. We have many things we don't understand, but as has been noted before, sometimes it's not the things that we don't understand that uh, create problems for us; it's the things we do understand and don't do that create problems for us. And and yet we thank you that you've given us minds to learn and inquire and your spirit to lead us into all truth. And so we pray that you would keep us true to your word and give us good understanding. We pray and we give you thanks again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. So our subject now is demonology. While it's not a one of the most pleasant subjects, at least um, we have much that Scripture has to say about it and that's what we want to try to do is see what the Word of God has to say. I want to turn first to Isaiah chapter 14, and as we're turning there, because Joanne reminded me of something that I think is important for us to see, um, in conversation in between the meetings, one thing did come to mind, it is interesting at least, I just throw this out there for your consideration, that what we find in the subject of angels, we find also in the subject of demons, in this sense, that there's the tendency to either distort and overemphasize, or the tendency to deny and underemphasize. But don't you find it at least a little bit curious? I do, that while there's so uh, there seems to be such a uh, fascination by many on the subject of angels, much of it very speculative, at best, and some just downright erroneous um, on what angels do and don't do and how much involvement they have and they don't have. And yet we come to those passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Ephesians chapter 3, which talk very clearly and specifically about one area that they do involve themselves in. And we don't, you know, (laughs) that doesn't interest folks as much. At least I find that that's that's, uh, generally true. Now, having said that, in Isaiah chapter 14... You have, in verse 12, the fall of Lucifer, who was the son of the morning, the bright morning star, if you will, the day star. And uh, he was a bright, shining being. It says he was cut down to the ground. He said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Lucifer. Now, as Joanne reminded me, the first sin to ever occur was not the sin of Adam and Eve. That was the first sin to ever occur in the world. But the first sin to ever occur was the fall of Lucifer. The five I wills that are recorded in Isaiah 14. (coughs) Excuse me. I believe that we read about him also. You can keep the Isaiah place if you like. In Ezekiel chapter 28, while the prophecy is against the <clears throat> king of Tyre, or Tyrus, it seems to extend beyond him because it says in verse 13 of Ezekiel 28, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. I won't read the entire description, but I I think it's important to note in Ezekiel 28 three or four things about Satan, that he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, that the precious stones were his covering, and they're listed, and if you'll notice, there's at least some striking similarity between the precious stones that adorned him and those stones that were part of the garments of the high priest. He was a musical being. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in the, in the day that thou was created. He is called in verse 14 the anointed cherub that covers. So it seems. Here's where again my when you ask about the classification of the cherubim and the seraphim, I believe that <coughs> we we can refer to um, Satan, who was at once. He was the anointed cherub that covers. So around the throne of God, there are four cherubim. He was the fifth cherub. He was over them. Of all the created beings, Lucifer was the first. He was the anointed cherub that covered. He was above the other four. And so his position was next to God's as far as a created being was concerned. And then he fell. And so um, he sinned. Now, that raises huge, huge questions of which we won't have the time nor purpose to go into today. But um, two questions at the outset. One, if he was in Eden, and that's a literal statement, if that's a literal statement, when was he in Eden in this Condition uncreated or unfallen here that is described in Ezekiel 28. And um, along with that, the reason why I even raise that, it's not our purpose to study Satan himself today, but we have to ask ourselves the question, don't we, where do demons come from? And we really don't have an absolute definitive answer of where they came from. They may well be fallen angels. I mean, I don't know any other way to describe, you know, where, where they came from. Um, which brings us another question. If demons are fallen angels... In other words, we have a group of angels that followed Satan in a rebellion, and then we had a group of angels that didn't follow Satan in that rebellion, okay? Then is it possible for the ones who didn't follow in the rebellion to rebel now?
2: No.
1: You say no. Why:
2: Well, because they could have rebelled, or they would have rebelled back then?
1: Agree or disagree? <clears throat> Not sure? Yeah. Theologians will say that angels, unfallen angels are in what they call an unconf- a, confirmed, a confirmed state of holiness a confirmed state of holiness. In other words, they will say, this is just by way of their explaining that which we are unclear on, but it's a logical inference that when all of the angels were created, they were in an unconfirmed state of holiness. In other words, with the possibility of falling. That once the rebellion occurred, Whatever state they were in was fixed. Confirmed holiness or unconfirmed fallen angels.
5: Is there a verse that they cling
1: to for that? No. Just inference, uh, implication, you know, of what appears to be the case. That there's nothing recorded in the book of Revelation that would indicate those angels who are not fallen, you know, ever fall. And there's nothing to indicate, certainly, that the demons... Uh, ever change their state. Um, and because we find uh, a statement such as you have in Matthew chapter 25 which says there, Matthew 25:41, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed. Enter into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So you have there the devil and his angels. So David, by way of, you know, implication there, uh, the devil fell. And then if he's got angels, they also were the ones that followed him and also fell. Follow me? you call that what confirmed? Yes, once once that rebellion took place, that's the terminology that's used to describe it. Confirmed and unconfirmed holiness. So that they were in a state of unconfirmed, they could go either way. But once the rebellion took place, their state was fixed.